You know what? Everyone is an expert. Welcome to the show. This is the Everyone an Expert show with Brett Rawson. I am your host, Brett Rawson. All right. My next guest is Randy Sutton from Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. So very excited to have you here. I know you uh, brought a friend and we'll have you introduce him in a minute, but just grateful that you came up. You're here to introduce the Wounded Blue and a fabulous organization with a righteous cause. Very happy to have you here. Randy, say hello. I am so happy to be up here with you guys. First of all, it is beautiful weather getting out of the hot summer of Las Vegas and coming to this cool, beautiful Salt Lake weather. It's cool. Excellent. Well, thank you. And so Wounded Blue, uh, organization that's been around just a little while, but making some headways, some roads uh, in law enforcement. Um, tell us a little bit about what Wounded Blue stands for. Well, the Wounded Blue is a national charitable organization. It's a, a registered nonprofit with the Internal Revenue Service. And it is dedicated to injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And those injuries are not only physical, but they are emotional as well. Um, what many people in the community don't realize is that when a police officer is injured or disabled, uh, most folks expect that those officers are going to be treated fairly and with uh, dignity, and they're going to get proper medical attention. They're going to be taken care of financially. And in fact, even most police officers believe that that is the reality should it ever happen to them. The reality is far different for many. There are tragic sets of circumstances all over this country where police officers, after they get shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, um, or any other number of ways you can get hurt and seriously injured as a cop, many of, th- of them are thrown away. They're abandoned by their police departments. They're abandoned by the cities that they sacrifice so much for. And that is why the Wounded Blue came into existence, because these men and women feel forgotten, they feel alone, and that in and of itself is a tragedy. Yeah, it is It is a tragedy. I, I know that you uh, have had a personal experience. I'm going to ask you in a minute to talk a little bit about what happened to you. Um, but first, I want to tell people just a little bit about where you come from. Now, I understand you're a Jersey boy. Is that right? I am a Jersey boy. I <laughs> I was born and raised in Princeton, the college town. So uh, I went to Princeton High School, and whenever anybody asks where I was educated, I always say I graduated from Princeton. (laughs) And I just don't tell them the rest of the story, that's all. So it was very impressive. Um, But I also became a police officer there at the ripe old age of 19. Uh, They had just changed the age of majority from 21 to 18, and you could drink and you could vote and you could become a cop. But what you couldn't do, you couldn't buy ammunition because you had to be 21 under federal law. Ah. So here I am getting ready to enter the New Jersey State Police Academy, the toughest academy in New Jersey. And I had to have my mom go buy my bullets. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I spent 10 years as a cop there. And then I I was bored and I needed action. And so I joined the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department where I was not bored. And I spent the next 24 years of my career there. And, you know, I, I think uh, for my listeners, um, I would do them a disservice to at, at least not have you share um, the OIS experience. I know you had more than one, but there was one that you relayed to me in a group of about 45 people. Um, and, and for my listeners, I met Randy on a cruise 
And I am not the much. Love, was it the love boat? <laughs> <laughs> it might as well have been. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't been much of a cruiser. Uh, this was only the second cruise. Uh, this was a uh, actually a working function. It was a mastermind cruise. And I would encourage those to look up uh, what the mastermind movement is all about. But I, I had an invitation. I went. I had no idea what to expect. And I certainly did not expect to find a brother in blue on that boat and here was Randy Sutton. And Randy uh, told a story. And I got to tell you, um, there was not a dry eye in the room uh, when he told his story. It was compelling and fascinating and put a perspective on what it is to be a cop that I think that, certainly for the civilians in the room, uh, was meaningful. And, um, and if it's okay with you, uh, could you relay a little bit of that? Absolutely. You know, every law enforcement officer that spends any time on the road at all will have life-changing experiences. Um, some will have life-altering experiences as well. Um, and I had several of those in my career. When we talk about the dangers that law enforcement officers face, we often think about the violence. And uh, on this particular night, that was what I faced. Uh, we call them active shooters now. At that time, they were just uh, a radio broadcast with a man shooting at kids at a high school dance. And I um, was coming off my dinner break. Uh, it was uh, 9 o'clock on a Saturday night. And at first, the radio report was so bizarre that my old partner and I, who were having dinner together, uh, looked at each other and looked, shook our heads and go, ah, this is, can't be real. Because the report was there was a man dressed all in black, wearing a shoulder holster, having uh, armed, being armed with a, a pistol, having bandoliers of ammunition draped around him uh, with a sword with throwing stars, and that he was shooting at kids at a high school dance. And um, the, the first momentary thought was, okay, this is a, this is a, a, nonsensic, a nonsensical kind of call. But it, it was only two blocks from where I was standing at the time. And besides that, within seconds, this became very, very real as we heard the report from our 911 operator that there were two couples on a double date following him. And they were talking to 911 operator as he was shooting at the kids. And now this is very, very real. And the pucker factor was increased exponentially. Um, the suspect saw that he was being followed by these two couples on a double date and uh, turned around and fired his weapon, and the bullet went between the heads of the two couples, at which time oh the gosh. driver thought, okay, you know what, I think I've done my civic duty, and he got the hell out of there. Yeah. Well, about that time, I'm pulling down the street. Like I said, this was I was literally only two blocks away from, from where this was taking place. And um, when, I, uh, when I pulled onto the street, I saw that there was another patrol car, patrol car pulling up two officers jumped out they have their lights shined on the suspect he's dressed exactly like the report dressed all in black he's got a gun in his hand as he's walking towards these officers and in as i'm processing this i expect what i'm going to see in the next few seconds is either a they're going to shoot him b he's going to run c he's going to he's going to give up d he's going to shoot himself all these scenarios are playing in my mind but he does something that no one expects. He simply walks right towards these officers. He holsters his weapon, 
And he just saunters right by them. We're giving him a little nod. And the two officers are standing there going, oh, damn, what do we do now? At that time, I had pulled up to the scene. I got out of my car. Um, the suspect started, uh, made a left turn as it was walking up an apartment driveway. And uh, I'm using some trees for cover, and I'm screaming, stop, stop, drop the gun, et cetera. And he's not listening to me anymore. And he listened to those first two officers. Um, helicopters gotten above us. They're shining their 80 zillion candle power light at the guy. And, uh, and he's walking right towards another group of people. Now this is decision-making time. This is the moment that I've trained for my entire career. And, uh, as much training as I've had, as much as I had prepared for this particular night, this time I had 14 years as a cop. Um, it, it's, it's not only a professional decision, it's a personal decision. And I didn't want to shoot him in the back. So I ran up behind him. And he heard me at the last moment. And he turned. And when he turned, I, uh, I, I kicked him in the, in the stomach area, thinking that I was going to be able to knock him down. Um, it didn't work. He, uh, he bent at the waist, and he pulled up his gun, uh, which he drew from his shoulder Now, holster. how close were you to this guy when this happened? We were within arm's length of each other. Wow. And we both fired at exactly the same time. We both fired, and my gun, I fired two rounds, and then my gun jammed. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I was not wearing any body armor because it was just too hot. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is, this is my time. And, uh, but I wasn't going to go down without a fight. And I'm, I'm trying to shoot. My gun's going click, click, click. His is going boom, boom, boom. And uh, we're literally, I mean, our gun muzzles were almost touching. And the, the helicopter was flying above. The, their, their rotor wash is picking up all kinds of dust and dirt. And I rolled onto my back, and I'm twisting from side to side trying to get my gun working. And, um, and he's trying to shoot me. And little pieces of asphalt are hitting me and... Rocks are hitting me, and those two officers that were there first, they see me go down, think I'm shot, and they, they open up on them with everything they got. So now their bullets are zinging over my head too. Oh, my gosh. And um, my old partner, remember the guy that I was having dinner with? Yeah. He hears on his radio the helicopters who says, um, muzzle flash, shots fired, officer down, because they saw the muzzle flash, saw me go down on my back and thought I was shot. So he, he drives in, he aims his patrol car at the guy, and he's going to run him over, which was a good theory. But when you're in a critical incident, um, sometimes you get tunnel vision. So he didn't see these big cement stanchions that were in the way. And all I heard was that big four-barrel carb kick in and then smash as he totaled out his brand-new police car. Oh, But that impact took the suspect's attention away from me long enough to stand up. I had cleared my gun, and now he and I are banging it out again. And we're literally just standing there in each other's faces, just shooting at each other. And I'm thinking I'm the world's worst shot because nothing is touching this guy. He's not a big guy. Um, and, I, and I'm expecting to feel what it's like to feel that bullet enter my body. We're just banging it out. And suddenly, he turns and runs. 
And when he runs, I chase after him. My old partner chases after him. And, uh, and we chase him around a building, and he's hiding behind a tree or a bush when we get around the side. And uh, we just opened up on him, and that was the end of the gunfight. But um, I never got hit. Unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable. A miracle. And my first two shots were fatal wounds, by the way. Hit him in, hit him in the chest. But unlike television, um, the real world doesn't work like many people in the media and, and the movie world think it does. Uh, he didn't know he was dead, and he didn't act like he was dead. He continued to fire and shoot and run. I wonder, you know, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I wonder if the average citizen has any idea the the expectation that the average officer has when, uh, you know, he straps on the bulletproof vest, you know, tightens up that Velcro, puts the tools on and heads out the door. The expectation that this could be the day. And, um, you know, I, I know from my own training from police academy and uh, the short uh, and amazing experience I had as a reserve officer, um, you know, that's that's a reality. You know, you go into that understanding that um, it's not if but when. That's what we say, right? It's not if but when you're going to get in the next gunfight. And that's what helps keeps, you know, to keep us alive. And I don't think the average, you know, average citizen fully recognizes that, but I love it when they show appreciation. I do appreciate that you brought uh, Eddie. Eddie, I understand that you uh, took a long plane flight to get here all the way from beautiful South Carolina. Yes, sir. Um, I, uh, I miss South Carolina. I mentioned to you that I graduated high school there and, uh, uh, you know, it was the last duty station, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps uh, for my father before I left and came west. And um, so I miss it. I'm glad you're here. And um, Eddie, uh, it's Eddie Richardson, uh, all the way from South Carolina. Did I get that name right? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, don't call me sir. Uh, that's 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 the South Carolina coming out right there. <laughs> Absolutely, I do it all the time. I can't help it. Um, tell us if you. I understand you were a trooper down there in South Carolina, and I understand that you were catastrophically injured. Is that fair? Uh, yes, sir. Tell me about it. Um, I did five years with the South Carolina Highway Patrol. Um. And kind of like uh, Randy was saying, he he wanted to be the real police and went over to to Vegas and and uh, and got to, into some you know real policing there. And it was the same thing for me. I just went to the same county that I'd been stationed in, uh, the Lexington County Sheriff's Department, in South Carolina. And I was a uh, shift supervisor there. I'd worked there for seven years, and uh, had a what we we hate to say the word routine call. Had a routine call one morning. Uh, a couple of local drunks um, that we dealt with often. Uh, they gave it to my rookie on my shift. I said, no, go get your time card done. I'll take the call for you. I'm used to dealing with them. And uh, it was nothing more than a suspicious vehicle in their yard. It was a two-acre lot. And uh, got there, talked to the guy in the car. He said he was sleeping it off, knew the homeowners, went to talk to the homeowners. They were sober, which should have been a red flag. And they were... Um, adamant that they wanted him off the property um when i went to go back to speak to him is when he decided to attack me and i was in no man's land between the house and the car when he put the pedal to the metal and chased me down in the yard and i say chase me down i literally had enough time to blade my body throw my left arm out and i catapulted up and over the vehicle rather than under it um they found out later he had hit me at 22 miles an hour. 
which is uh, not fun. That is, that is one heck of an impact. Um, and I don't recall how I got off the car. The next thing I remember is landing on my right foot and my left foot was in front of my left eye touching my forehead. And I said, I don't, I don't bend this way mm. as I'm spinning. Um, he's looking to come back for round two at me, at which point I had to, had to shoot him. Um, but even with my leg in the air and, and, and hit as hard as I was, I still went to try and render aid as he crashed his vehicle, uh, into one of the trees and, uh, had to deal with it as, as Randy had said, it's, it's a, it's not just a career decision. It's a life decision. But I knew that if I didn't stop him, he was going to hurt somebody else and he was going to come back and hurt me also. So let me get this straight. You were hit, uh, by a vehicle going 22 miles an hour. Um, uh, this guy runs you over. Essentially, uh, you fly through the air. You're able to draw your weapon and fire at the suspect. Yes, as soon as I landed on the ground, um, I opened fire on him. Uh, one-legged, I, I call it a, a, a almost a bar- ballerina pirouette, <laughs> or, or the closest I can come to it at six one. Um, it, uh, it it amazed me that I actually was able to do it. I never really thought I'd be able to in circumstances like so that. So let me guess, just like the movies, then you were able just to hop up, go on about your life, and everything was perfect afterwards, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Went back to the office. <laughs> we... Uh, we sat around and talked, and then I, my captain yelled at me, and I got to walk back out and start doing my job again, just like they do in Lethal Weapon. <laughs> um, what really happened? Well, what really happened was uh, I refused medical treatment because the adrenaline's still pumping. I didn't realize I was hurt. Um, finally got transported to the emergency room, and uh, my sheriff and uh, and the command staff did not... Uh, bothered to show up they had, had one major that showed up to check on me along with internal affairs and state law enforcement division because they had to take my clothes take my gun um and and start their investigation and uh the the emergency room and workers comp had them x-ray my knees and my shins and they sent me home with four pain pills and i was placed on administrative leave uh two days later when i woke up i went to get out of the bed and realized that my legs weren't um getting out of the bed at the same time my torso was trying to they weren't the the lower half wasn't talking to the upper half and vice versa um made an appointment with the with the comp doctor they took they sent me over to him and he actually physically cleared me to go to work unreal while my legs weren't working the only way i can think to describe it is if you used to stop at those uh uh uh, used to stop at those uh, flea market places where the you squeeze the little little guy standing there holding onto the sticks and the legs go out from sure. underneath them and snap back up. That's what my legs were doing. Ugh. He actually handed me a set of crutches and said, "Here you go, you're fine." Crutches for legs that don't work, and uh, I had to learn how to walk. Mm. I had to learn how to use the restroom. Um, it was a very trying time for me, and then it it, it took a lot of fighting just to get uh, them to do an MRI on my spine. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think a lot of folks out there assume that if you get injured on the job, certainly in a law enforcement job, that there's some sort of safety net. There's somebody there to take care of you and that everything is just handled and all your bills are paid and they throw you a party and hand you the keys to the city and everybody goes about their business. Is that not the way it is? Uh, I guess that's Hollywood again. Um I, I, and, and in all honesty, as I'm going through this, I'm thinking it's just me. 
I'm the only one that's dealing with this. It's just because it's my luck. It's just because of my stature in the department that I'm having to fight for them to do tests on me, having to fight to explain why I can't feel anything in my lower half. Um, and and they kept saying, oh, you're, you're fine. And, of course, you start hearing the, the oh, he's milking it. You know, uh, well, if you just do what the doctor says, the doctor's telling me to go through physical therapy for legs that don't respond. Um, after countlessly fighting, or fighting with them for countless months, they finally did a couple of procedures on my spine, and I got the feeling back in my legs, my right leg, hyper feeling. And after two weeks, it sounded like somebody shot a twenty-two behind my back while I was sitting on the couch, and I lost all the feeling in my leg again, mm. almost lost uh, control of my uh, faculties. And they uh, they said, "No, nothing's wrong with it. You're fine." I said, "I can't feel anything on my right side." again and for eight months they told me i was lying um during that time i reached out for mental health help from the department through the quote confidential employee assistance program and five minutes after making the telephone call everybody in human resources knew that i needed to see a counselor and 15 minutes Mm -hmm. later I was getting calls from my subordinates on the road asking me how messed up I really was because they'd already heard. You're saying it wasn't confidential. Not in the slightest. Um, not, not in the slightest. It, it, and, and, and to get this, um, they sent me to a counselor who's located in the same parking lot as our traffic divisions office. (laughs) So I had to go park behind the traffic division walk into the counselor where everybody knew, hey, Eddie's going to see the, the shrink, uh, and, and walk back out in front of them through every single session. So they knew I was going. They knew when I was going. They knew who I was going to, and I wasn't getting any any sort of help from that. Eddie, what is what is your prognosis now? Um, I After fighting and fighting and fighting, um, they finally sent me to a neurologist to, as the doctor said, prove I was lying about it. And the neurologist finally did the tests with my nerves and said, I'm sorry now because they've let it go so long. Your L5 nerve is dead in your spine. Your L4 is 80% impacted. I had to have hip reconstruction surgery as part of it also. Um, And they refused to do anything involving the mental health or the fact that I can't recall how I got off the car. I deal with blinding migraines. Um, It's been stated multiple times that there's TBI uh, or traumatic brain injury possibility. Workers' comp would not touch it, refused to look at it. To this day, still says it, you know, we have no evidence of such. Um, so every day is, you know, I deal with the dead nerve. I have a I have a leg brace I get to walk with. I've had five-ish surgeries on my spine um, and, and on my hip. Uh, and my prognosis is that it's not going to get any better at this point. Social Security Department has, has deemed me disabled. Um, after how long it took, I was injured August 1st of 2016, January 23rd of this year, social security deemed me to be disabled at which point I was able to, to start getting benefits, but the benefits didn't start until May of this year. And I still have yet to receive my lump sum payment for my back pay. Randy, can you shed some light on this? Why? In 2019, 2016, why in the modern era in the United States of America, the greatest country on earth, why does this happen? This happens, Brett, because of greed, 
because of corruption, because of poor leadership in the um, levels of law enforcement administrations, because of poor leadership in the city administrations. And it really comes down to dollars and cents. Um, Absolutely. When it really, when you, when you knock everything away, once you become an, an injured as a police officer, the city works against you. You are a liability. You are no longer an asset to that organization or that government body. And I, t- I tell you, what, what Eddie just described to you is taking place thousands of times over in this country. Um, now, I, I didn't intend to retire when I did. I had a stroke in my police. Yeah, car. I meant to ask you. Tell me, tell me about uh, what happened to you with your health and, and go through that, if you would. I, I realize uh, you went through something that um, changed your life and uh, was, was not on the agenda but nevertheless happened. I understand you were, you were driving around with, uh, you were LT at the time, right? Yep. I was the watch commander. Um, and remember Las Vegas is the ninth largest police department in the country. So we have a, we have a lot of folks out there on the road and I was the graveyard watch commander. Um, I, I spent my entire lieutenant's career working graveyard shift because in Vegas, that's the happening shift. That's where all, <laughs> that's where everything's going on. And I loved policing. I loved police work. I loved the action. Um, and then one night, it all ended for me. I uh, was driving around on the Las Vegas Strip. I had a, a young police officer with me because when I was watch commander, I would take a young cop with me so he could see what the lieutenant did, that maybe we actually did some police work every now and then. And I had this young man with me, never ridden with me before. And at 2.30 in the morning, I literally felt my brain slowing down. And I realized I was having a stroke. I stopped the car, the patrol car, right in the middle of the strip, and I said to this poor kid, I said, get me medical, I'm having a stroke. And first he's looking at me like, is the lieutenant serious? And then I started speaking gibberish, and he knew I was serious. So um, I had a stroke. It ended my police career. My own police department turned its back on me, didn't pay my medical bills, forced me to go to court, knowing that they had to, knowing that the... It was their resp- It was their legal responsibility. They just didn't do it. What's as you're lying there, not, and I and I've heard this story before. I understand you made it from the driver's seat around the car, heading to the passenger seat. You were hoping, I think, that your uh, partner would drive you uh, to get assistance, but you didn't make it to the driver's seat, did you? I didn't. I um, I was uh, the symptoms started. I as soon as I felt my brain slowing down, as I'm talking to this young man my words became slower as well. Oof. And I knew it, and I, I had no control over it. And I got out of the car to get to the passenger side, and I started speaking gibberish. Now, this is the freakiest thing that ever happened. I know I'm speaking gibberish. I know what I'm trying to say, but that's not what's coming out of my mouth. And as I got towards the, the car door, I literally lost all ability to move now you had some uh some metro officers show up to your aid and uh (laughs) i did do you remember uh you know the sights and sounds as you're kind of fading out no you know what i was completely conscious of everything that was going on around me i was just powerless to communicate and i i remember very very well thinking i'm not afraid of dying 
I'm afraid of living like this. Could you have in your wildest dreams, notwithstanding that you have all your buddies there, that I understand they swarmed around you and kind of kept uh, some of the riffraff off of you with their, their uh, iPhones and uh, uh, photographing you and videotaping you, but in your wildest dreams, could you have imagined what was in store for you with respect to how you would be treated from the agency? Never, never. I, 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 it was the scariest moment of my life. And as you know, just from the previous story we told, I've been in some scary situations, but I was never more frightened. I was, I was literally helpless. Um, couldn't speak, couldn't move, wondering, you know, oh my God, is this, is this the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life? And they got me to the hospital. The ambulance picked me up. Um, and, and I was that same little angel that was on my shoulder that night so many years ago in that, in that particular gunfight was on my shoulder again. And the, the clot, the blood clot that caused the stroke went through my brain, um, causing a little bit of damage, but nothing like what it could have caused. Another um, miracle. It was, a, it was a miracle. Right. I mean, I, I count myself incredibly fortunate. And, um, and isn't that why you're doing what you're doing now? Well, why I'm doing what I'm doing is, I mean, that gave me an insight, but I thought, you know, and then after, after I had the stroke and suddenly I start getting bills and after I had filled out all the paperwork for workers comp, because in the state of Nevada, any heart disease or lung disease is automatically considered a workers compensation injury. And they, found out during the testing that I had a, a heart condition that had that had taken place. So I know it was covered by workers' comp, so I fill out the paperwork, and you just expect them to pay your bills. But like Eddie, they just said <laughs> no. And my private insurance wasn't going to pay for it because it's workers' comp. And then well, work, work, If you have private insurance. Well, I had, I had, of course, I had private insurance because, you know, we ha- you, you, ha- you have your, your health care. But they weren't going to pay the bills. And then workers' comp just said, no, we're not paying. It's not workers' comp. And I, 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 was, I went and I, I talked to all the people in the administration. And they said, Randy, it's nothing personal. It's just business. And they spent tens of thousands of dollars fighting me over a period of almost a year. Meanwhile, my credit was ruined. And, and so at the end of it, I won. Of course I won. I knew that. But it did... First of all, I, I hated my department afterwards. I hated my sheriff afterwards. I felt completely used and abused. Um, and uh, I thought it was just me, just like Eddie thought. He thought it was just him. And then when I retired, because of, of my visibility in the law enforcement community as a, as a, a national trainer and, and you know visible as far as my radio show, The Voice of American Law Enforcement, cops started contacting me. Not because I could do anything, but simply because they had nobody else to turn to, saying, Randy, I was shot. My chief never came to see me. Uh, nobody's paying my bills. Uh, my, I can't feed my family. Um, not one, not two, not ten, but hundreds. And, and understand, for them to speak out is the worst thing that they can do in their eyes because they're trying to be amicable. They're trying to... To work the system, they they still have that faith that's going to come back. They still have the belief that they may go back to work. So for them to reach out to Randy is the point of, 
I literally, I have nowhere else to turn. I can't talk to anybody else about it. And if anybody finds out, I'm done. And How do we find out about the Wounded Blue? Where do officers go for help? We are really easy to find. First of all, thewoundedblue.org is our website. All they have to do is fill out a contact form saying who they, who they are and a way to contact them. And we have a fully trained peer support team. All of the members of our peer advocate support team, which Eddie heads up, um, are all in uh, officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed over. Um, not just physically, but emotionally as well. Post-traumatic stress is a major issue that we deal with. And remember, post-traumatic stress injury is just that, an injury. It can be dealt with. It can be cured. It can be um, built upon. And, and you know what? There are so many folks that, that are, feel so stigmatized about reaching out, and all of our guys have been there. Um, our motto is probably the most important thing to us. Never forgotten, never alone. Because that's what every one of these officers feels like, and they aren't. Every we are there for them. Amen, brothers. What's the website? Thewoundedblue.org. And if people are Facebookers, we're right on Facebook, The Wounded Blue. Instagram, Twitter, all under the same name. And I know we're running short on time. Can I throw some statistics at you very quickly? Since its inception, since Randy created this group, to give you an idea, as of today, we are at 1,373 peer supports by a team of nine. We're in contact with over 20,000 wounded officers, and it's increasing exponentially every day. We are actually increasing. We're doubling our peer team next uh, in the next two weeks uh, all will be fully trained and certified these are heroic men and women all who have suffered devastating injuries and um, the 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 men and women who are listening to this who are either law enforcement officers or the families of law enforcement officers reach out to us there are no charge for any of our peer support uh, we work to get people into treatment who need it and we are a resource for anyone who has served or is serving. And your department will never know. They won't even know if you referred the other person to us if you have a referral. Just reach out. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for not only what you're doing with the Wounded Blue, but for your service. Thank you. I appreciate you. Uh, The law enforcement community needs this, and we're going to get the word out. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us.